Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews chapter 9 and also Exodus chapter 26. It is a special day, but we're not gonna deviate today from our regular study because we're encouraged. There's some things in this study that are encourage you about keeping your eyes on Jesus Christ. And remember, we're studying through the book of Hebrews, a group of Jewish Christians that are being tempted to go back to the religious system. They have Jesus Christ, and he is better and superior and the fulfillment of everything that they have worshiped. Every piece of the system that they were raised in is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And yet through the pressures of life, perhaps cultural pressures, family pressures, they're being tempted to go backwards. And by the time we come to chapter nine, chapter nine opens up, then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And then we're introduced in verse two to the tabernacle. If you haven't already, circle that word and write next to it, tent. This was the temporary portable tent that was used for worship back in the book of Exodus for the nation of Israel, that group of followers of God that were delivered out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They were told by God, Moses was, to build me a tent, build me a tabernacle, and that's where I will dwell with and speak to the people. And so he says that the tabernacle was prepared. He starts to give all of the ingredients. And then he says at the end in verse five, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, we've chosen, we have the time to speak of them in detail. And we want you, by the time we get back to chapter nine, looking at it verse by verse, you will understand what he's referring to. Now remember, the only way to study the Bible The only way that you can have the Bible speak to you today, the only way you're gonna be able to open it and understand what it means to you today is to first understand what it meant to the people that it was written to. That the Bible has a historical and a contextual point in history. So that we know Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century. And so we have to put ourselves in their place. What did they hear and what did it mean to them? That's the interpretation of a text. And only then can we learn how to apply the text. Any other way, if you just open the Bible and read and go, well, this is what it means, you may or may not be right. You may get it right, you might have guessed right, you might have applied it right, but in order to be sure, you have to make sure you understand what the hearers heard and what it meant to them. So that when we get to chapter nine and he says, hey, remember the old covenant? Remember the old agreement that God made with your ancestors, with those that were delivered out of Egypt? He told them to build a tabernacle. And so that's why we're coming to Exodus 26 so we can understand all about that tabernacle and what it would mean. Because at the time that Hebrews was written, They weren't in that tent anymore. Instead, they had the temple. 
And the temple was much more grand and big and, and beautiful. It was much more than God ever intended. Truly, if you study the Bible, you'll notice that God never instructed anyone to build a temple. The only instruction that he gave was to build the tent. It was David's desire to build the temple. And I believe it was out of relationship with God. And remember, it was David's desire, but even he didn't build the temple, the first one. His son, Solomon, built it. So the whole Bible, one of the, things, one of the other things that we're learning by looking at this tent, this tabernacle, is that the whole Bible is one unit. And that it's all important. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, the entire Bible is important. Because I know sometimes when you get to the beginning of the year, I know we're a little bit further in the year, but you get to the beginning of the year and you want to read through the Bible. And so you open up the Bible, you start reading in Genesis, and you're like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm following this life and this situation. Then you get to Exodus, and you're just like, okay, I can see how God is forming a nation for himself, and he's raised up a leader by the name of Moses. And, I, and then he start, you start to get into the minutia, like we're reading today. You're like, well, you know, why does it matter that I know about the tabernacle? And why does it matter what was used in the tabernacle and what kind of wood and what kind of yarn and what colors, why does it matter? Well, today, as we've seen last time, it matters a lot because everything points to Jesus Christ. The whole Bible, that's the big theme of the Bible is God's redemption of man through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we learned last time of the furniture, and remember, they built an, a box known as the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of the box, they put the Ten Commandments. At this time, the Ten Commandments. And that would be in the Holy of Holies. But God said, build me a tabernacle, and there I will meet with my people. I will dwell with my people. And he said, I'm going to meet with them, not in the box, not in the box, not through the law. But where did he say he'd meet with them? On top. Remember, there was a lid. And we learned that the lid is called the mercy seat. And there was the mercy seat with the two angels there on either side. And that was where once a year, the high priest would come in and spread the blood of the sacrifice, not in the box, but on the box. And we meet God at the mercy seat. And we learned last time, if you weren't here, you got to pick it up, that the mercy seat actually points to the coming final mercy seat, Jesus Christ. It's amazing and fascinating. So pick up with me in Exodus chapter 26 and let's move on to actual ingredients of the tent itself. Verse one. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of woven fine linen thread, blue and purple and scarlet yarn. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, the width of the curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Verse 3. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the outer curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain. That is on the end of the second set. And the loops that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and a couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. 
So we're going to go from what the material is from the inside. And this is the inside of the tabernacle that the priest would see when he walks in. This would be what would be seen on the inside. So the inside, there's 10 different curtains made of linen and the threads that were used were blue, purple, and scarlet. Um, They're gonna be coupled together in fives with these 50 clasps made of gold. Now, now on the inside, there would be these two huge curtains made up of five each, held together by these 50 clasps of gold. And I want you to notice that there are four primary colors being used on the inside of the tent. And they're very significant. Notice there is the color blue. Now, in the Bible, blue speaks of heaven. And it gives us a pointing to the heavenly realm. The second, the second color is purple. Now, we've learned that purple is a color of royalty. Scarlet, of course, this dark red, speaks of, to us of the blood of the lamb. It speaks to us of sacrifice for sin. And then the very material itself was to be woven in white, white linen, speaking of humanity. And this is what the priests would see when they walked in. Now, the number four is interesting, first off, with just the four colors. Because, you know, in the New Testament, there are four books that we know as the Gospels that speak on the life of Jesus Christ. Same with me, out loud. You ready? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right in the beginning, these four books have different perspectives on the life of Jesus. So check this out, how the colors fit with the Gospels. Matthew teaches us about Jesus as the King of Kings, which would correspond to the color purple, royalty. Mark, Mark speaks to us as, and teaches us about Jesus as the perfect servant, the sacrificial servant. The color for Mark would be scarlet. Luke gives us insight on Jesus, portraying him as the perfect man, which would be the white. And then finally, John describes Jesus and his powerful deity, which would speak to us of blue or bringing us into the heavenly realm. Now, at this point, some would say, now wait a minute, Ed. Did they really understand this when they were building the tabernacle? The answer is no. But in that gives us a great insight on our life today. You see, we learned last time that when God spoke to them to build the tabernacle, to build this tent, that he gave very precise instructions. That you could say that God is into the details. And he wanted it to be precisely measured and precisely cut and the right colors and the right materials. He wanted everything made and he wanted it made this way. That's the way it is. And oftentimes, isn't that how God is with us? He tells us to do things very specifically, with great detail. And none of us have permission to deviate from God's precise instructions. None of us have a way out and say, well, you know, there's an exception for me. I know God said it to do it this way, but I figured out and I'm going to do it sort of this way. No, we're to do what God tells us to do even when we don't understand why. A lot of you, maybe some of you even right now, are holding back from God because your attitude is this. 
I'll do, I have no problem doing what God wants me to do when he explains to me why he wants me to do it. And you're waiting for understanding. You, you have heard from God, you've received direction from God, and in order to act, you're waiting for understanding. You're saying, you know, I'll move forward with the things of God when I understand this, and I understand why, and I get all the answers that I'm looking for. And what that's done is it's stunted your spiritual growth. It's held you back on your own. You're beginning to lean on your own understanding because so many of us can share the testimony that God may not reveal to you ever why he's telling you to do something, but it's a part of his plan. So he gives the precise instruction, I want the inside to be white linen. Speaking, I, I want, and I want these particular colors. You can't use any other color. These are the colors I want. And you can think of a possibility of saying, well, I don't know, I don't like this color, and I have more of this color than that color, and this color is expensive, and all the reasons that could come up. But that's not what we read. They made it precisely, even though they didn't understand. And some of you are in a position today where God has given you direction, and we don't quite know what the reason is, except to say that God told you to do it this way, and that you're to follow every detail that God has given to you and not to veer to the left or to the right. It's part of the new covenant of grace. God fulfills his side of the covenant and we respond. As it's been said wisely, we, we don't live by understanding. We live by faith. And that, la that lack of understanding is causing you and me to cry out to God in faith. In the New Testament, we would to explain this particular insight, we would go to Romans chapter eight, verse 28, and we'd be reminded that God's working all things together for the good, for those that love him, those that are called according to his purpose. And then we cry, wait, I don't understand. I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand why God allowed this. I don't get this, this direction. And we just fall back and say, well, even though I don't understand God, I follow you by faith. I follow you by faith. And so you're right, if you're thinking, man, those guys building the tabernacle, did they have any idea the significance of all that would happen there? I don't think they did. But now we looking backwards can say, oh wow, the insights that God was showing to them that they didn't even really fully understand, except they were growing in relationship. These were the inside curtains. And then there were angels on the inside they were told to put angels in because angels are very instrumental in the life of Jesus. They were there at his birth. They were there when he was tempted in the wilderness. They were there in the garden of Gethsemane when he told Peter to put his sword down. They were there at his resurrection. Angels were very important in the ministry of Jesus Christ as they will be in the book of Revelation. Now notice the next layer uh, in verse seven. So this was the inside. Now it's gonna be a covering over the inside. Verse seven, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair. Now goat's hair in the Middle East would be black. So this would be a black covering over the linen, the white linen. So you will make a covering of black's hair, black, goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. The width of each curtain, four cubits. And 11 curtains shall have all the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. 
And you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, that is the outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. You shall make 50 bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the hoops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side, a cubit on the other side. By the way, a cubit is about 18 inches. It's about the distance between your elbow um, to the tip of your finger in that area. And so he says, of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side, on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram skins as we'll get to in a moment. So the inside linen now was covered with this black covering. And notice now he told them to make 11 separate curtains, an odd number. And so we want to look through some, some numbers here with numerology. So no, we don't only have typology with the colors and the materials, but we also see numbers being used. And here they were five on one side and six on the other. Six in the Bible is the number of man or of flesh. You might be familiar with the number six when you get to Revelation. The number of the beast is what? Six, six, six. Six is a number of man. Five happens to be the number of grace. So you see now in this layer, you have flesh, a man, and grace met together. Now, 11 in the Bible is a number of disorder. And so you have 11 curtains made up of flesh and grace. So stay with me because they were brought together with bronze clasps. Bronze or brass in the Bible speaks of judgment, linking them together. And the judgment that's upon man links grace and man together. How would you ever understand grace unless you understood judgment? How would you ever understand the grace of God and the price that Jesus paid for you and me unless we understood what we deserve as they come together? Now these two curtains, the goat's hair and the fine linen together also speak of Jesus Christ because on the inside is this beautiful scene of heaven, the beautiful tapestry of the, of the heavenly realm and the angels, but over it is black. Inside wonderful, but he who knew no sin became sin for us as he hung on the cross. So ugly was the sin upon our Savior that the Father turned away and it became dark while Jesus hung on the cross for three hours, darkness covered the land. You see, the tabernacle, even in these first two curtains, would speak of the beauty of Jesus and the darkness of sin that sent him to the cross, where grace meets humanity. But that's not all. Notice verse 14, another covering. There's actually four total. You shall make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent. You don't need to know. I don't need to teach you by now. You know that red represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And so here you have another covering, the ram. Now jot it down. We're not going to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 22, we already learn in the life of Abraham and in the sacrifice of his son Isaac that God provided himself a sacrifice. You know what it was? A ram caught in the thicket. 
So instead of Isaac being offered to God, God received an offering, listen, God received an offering that satisfied him that he himself provided. That's the work of God, all within the tabernacle here. So this ram skin that's dyed in red covers the blackness, speaks of heaven as the blood covers sin and the difficulty of sin. There's a fourth layer. Check this out, verse 14. And on top of that, put a covering of badger skins above that. Now, badgers are not the prettiest animal on the planet, and their skins aren't either. This was the outside. This was the covering. This would be the top of the tent, so that as you were walking by, that's what you would see. You'd see the badger skins. Now, why is this significant? Well, when the Moabites came by the camp of Israel, they would see tents all over the place, and they'd see that tent in the middle, but it would be badger skins. It would be normal and common. This would be the side that the, that the Moabites saw. This would be the side that the Canaanites saw. From the outside, the tabernacle looked like any other tent. It was shaped a little bit differently, but there was nothing on the outside that would make you think there's anything beautiful on the inside. And I had a hard time trying to grasp what this might be, but you know, if, if we were to take a tour down to Cherry Creek and we'd see all the mansions there and we just kind of imagine, wow, look at the outside, it's amazing. It must be even more amazing on the inside. And so we're going on a little tour of mansions and we come across the mansion that's all boarded up with plywood and, and the stucco's all coming off and there's holes in the roof and we're like, oh, there's nothing about that mansion. There's nothing, we just pass by to the next one. But they say, no, 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 you need to come in. Don't let looks deceive you. And when you walk in, it's just as beautiful as anything else. You walk by and you go, there's nothing there that would make it attractive to me. But on the inside, that's what matters. It reminded me of a couple things. First of all, that's really how the world operates. Do you know the Bible says that man looks at the outward, but God sees the heart? And it's true, that's all we have to judge. When I look out, all we can see is the outward. And, and as a church family, you know, maybe even thinking about how, how this building, you know, this big square building that we meet in, when you drive by, it's even hard to tell what it is. That's, that's one of the reasons why we added church to our name, because you, it's hard to even tell what this is. So what is that big building? What do they have? Is it just a school? Is it, do they do weddings there? Is it a venue? No, no, actually, we're a church. We do a lot of ministry here. But you look on the outward and you go, I don't know, I don't know, what, there's not much to that. But what's important about this building is not the outward. What's important about this building is when people show up, what's on the inside. It's what's important. You look by, you go, I don't know, it's not so, not so appealing on the outside. But we don't care what it looks like on the outside. We care about what's on the inside. And that's God's heart for you and for me. But not only that, remember, Jesus is described as not being very attractive. You go, what do you mean? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Listen to what it says. And when we see him, speaking of Messiah to come, there is no beauty in that we would desire him. You know what that means? Jesus looked like everyone else as a man. And it's so different, isn't it, than the way he is painted and portrayed. 
The way he's painted in paintings is, is like, you, you kind of think Jesus always floated around six inches above the ground. He glowed in the dark. He always has a halo over him. He always looks more handsome than everyone. But remember, we get great insight on the fact that Jesus looked common and ordinary by the moment he was betrayed. When they came to take Jesus away, how did they know Jesus was the one? Well, I know, Ed, he was the one that was glowing in the dark. That was pretty obvious. Just go to the glow stick, that guy, he's the one. Or look at his feet, anybody that's six inches off the ground. The Bible doesn't say that. It's much more simple, isn't it? They knew he was Jesus because Judas kissed him. And this part of the tabernacle really ministers to us because the tabernacle reminds us, when you look at it, it's just like a badger skin just kind of put together. But when you get through the layers and you get to the inside, Jesus was a man, just appearance of a man, 100% on the outside. But Jesus was filled with 100% deity at the same time. And all this is being put together with this tent as a place of worship in the children of Israel. One more thing before we leave. Check this out, the boards. This was the very skeleton of the tent in verse 15. For the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. So let me summarize it for you as we're short on time. There were 20 boards on the north, 20 on the south, and six on the west that would leave the east open. That's how the tent would be made. It would be enclosed, but the east side would be open. Now, this is where things get exciting. I say that at every point, but they're all exciting. So this is where it gets exciting because you've got to go to Israel with us. I hope one day I can take you to Israel because on, one, on the first day we're in Jerusalem, we're going to get up early in the morning. We're going to go over to the Mount of Olives. We're going to have a Bible study there and we're going to look over on the Temple Mount and we are going to face, for those of you who already been, you already know this, from that vantage point, we are going to look at the Eastern Wall. On to the right is the eastern gate. Now, the gate that's there currently was not the gate that Jesus went through because it's been built up over time. But I forget if it was Suleiman the Great, I forget exactly which person did this, but one of the Muslim rulers over the years actually took that gate and sealed it. You want to know why? Because he believed the Bible. Because the Bible says that Jesus will return from the east. And come in, he will come into the, I should say from the west, to come into the eastern gate. Not only did they seal the eastern gate, but they put a Muslim cemetery in front of it. Because here's their thinking. No good Jewish person would walk through in a cemetery to get through a sealed gate. And that's where they didn't believe all of the Bible. Because they left out the part that when Jesus Christ returns... On the Mount of Olives, when his feet touch, he's going to split open. There's going to be a massive earthquake that's going to split open, and the way of the Savior is going to be made by his return eastward. All in the tabernacle. It all fits together. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Not only that, we're back to acacia word again. And acacia wood, again, speaking of humanity, wasn't a pretty bush. It wasn't a big, beautiful tree. It was a little shrubbery type of bush that grows in arid climates. 
And here's where the acacia wood reminds us of ourselves. The skeleton of that tabernacle speaks of humanity, and yet it's not a pretty humanity. You know, in order to use the wood from the, from the acacia tree, you'd have to cut it down, beat it, sand it, even put little notches into it, as you see, drill little holes into it, so that it can be used in the proper way for God. I think of our own lives, of all the work that God is doing, how he's honing us, how he's crushing us, bringing about humility in our lives, how he's adding this and taking away that. As we see in a moment, the, the, the holes were made to clasp them together so that they could be held together with these sockets of silver. And you know, your life is just an, a work in progress in the hands of God, in the hands of a master craftsman. We've had to be cut down and cut up. We've had to be trimmed and worked on in order to be useful in the master's hands. That the only choice that a piece of wood has is to submit to the master. You know, you can't have a piece of wood just kind of run away and say, I don't want to be used anymore. It hurts too much. But the only response is, is to submit to the craft, the craft of the master, his wisdom. Jeremiah was given a similar picture when Jeremiah was told to go into the potter's house and look at the clay, watch the potter with his clay that as the wheel was spinning and that lump of clay was becoming something, Jeremiah saw uh, it was startling that the Bible says that the clay became marred. It means, he made, it means that, that, that something happened in it that had to be redone. And one of the things the text tells us is that it became marred in the potter's hands. Don't you ever forget you're in the potter's hands. Yeah, it might be marred. You might have stumbled and fallen. You might, have, you might even look at your life today and go, it's over, I don't, I've blown it and it's over. I'll just, it'll never recover. Well, in your own strength, you'll never recover. Never, it'll never happen. It will never occur. You'll never be able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You'll never be able to please God in your own strength. But with the resources that are made available by your abiding relationship of grace in Jesus Christ. Everything you need to please God is available to you in him, everything. Which makes sense as we're going through Hebrews to turn away from Jesus Christ is a foolish choice. Everything you need is found in him. It's not in a religious system. It's not in a man. It's not in a relationship. It's not in a thing. It's not in more of. You have all things pertaining to life and godliness through your relationship with Jesus Christ, the knowledge of him. And so one more thing before we leave. There are sockets of silver that hold these boards together as it creates the skeleton of the tabernacle of the tent. Silver speaks of redemption. So if wood speaks of man and these boards represent us, being fashioned into what God wants for us, we're held together by redemption. And one of, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as a church is unity. It's very hard to find unity in the world today. We're in a, in a, in a world that is fractured and, and everyone going at each other. 
I have to say, even in the church world, one of the weaknesses of the broader church of Jesus Christ is a fracture among us, just like it was in the, in the church in Corinth. One of the weaknesses of the church in Corinth was that they had factions and they were divided. One of the greatest weaknesses that can occur in our own homes is to see families divided. But one of the strengths is unity. Unity, it makes us stronger. And when I think of church, I think, first of all, the unity among us as believers here in this little fellowship family. It's not a fake unity. We don't pretend here, but we really face everything head on and allow God to heal our wounds, to, to the, allow us to walk in forgiveness where we don't hold grudges against each other. We're not all bitter against each other, but we walk in forgiveness. We admit that we fail one another and we come together even stronger, even stronger than before the wound. But I think at the bigger, broader, the bigger part of the church, capital C, we are not in competition with any church in town here. We're in unity with every true church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are happy for them. We support them. We pray for them. And don't ever get into this mindset like, like somehow they're in competition with us. No, no church should be in competition. Our motives should be to build the kingdom of God. Our motives are not to fill churches, but to fill heaven. That's the heart behind it. When you share the gospel, it's for him. It's not for us. And that's why when I mention something like the horrible shooting or, or we have crisis in our community, you don't have to wait for the church to organize something because we may or may not organize something. If God places upon your heart, for example, you're watching the news and you see all those parents gathered together at the Northridge Rec Center in Highlands Ranch and you have this impression, I think I need to be there, then you get up Get out of your pajamas, put some clothes on, and get over there. And you go, Ed, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, just take the first step. The Lord will show you when you get there. And if you feel like standing, if you think God wants you to stand on the sidewalk and pray, stand on the sidewalk and pray. If God thinks you, you're gonna be, if you, you think you're going to be used with somebody walking by or coming through, or who knows? But you don't have to wait for the church to announce something. You are the church. And God wants us to infiltrate our culture. It's not just what we do corporately, because you know, there are things that we do that are organized, and there are things to do where we gather together. But most of the time, what God does is as he scattered us throughout our communities, so that you become the salt and the light on your street when you're watching the news. I know, I know our first response to things in darkness is often anger and outrage, and, and you just throw up your hands and, and you're looking for someone to criticize and you're looking for, that's a natural response. But we can't live in the natural. We gotta live in the supernatural. And the supernatural response of Jesus was always to enter into the lives of broken, hurting, sin-soaked people. And that's God's will for our lives. He wants us to realize that our strength is in unity. And so you, you can, as you fan out in the community, our church doesn't need to get any credit for that. That church doesn't need to get any credit for that. The credit goes to the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. That he's using you and that you're moving forward in all that God has given you to do. So when I think of the boards here, they all had a place. They all had a purpose. And all of them were needed. 
It's like you just didn't use a couple of them. God said, these are all that I need. I want them all. And then you might even think, well, wait a minute. Let's close up the east. Don't mess around with the details of God. He wanted the east open on purpose. Sometimes you look at it, oh, you know, God made a mistake. God don't make no mistakes. You're not a mistake. I'm not a mistake. And even the mistakes that we make are redeemed by God for his plan, his purposes, and his will. And so the tabernacle is pretty fascinating as you look at it, that even though they didn't know all the pieces, I am so grateful they did exactly as God told them to do. Because here we are a couple thousand years later looking back and going, man, this is awesome. If you just knew Messiah, if you just knew who he was, if you just knew, and isn't that what Jesus said by the time he comes in the first century, he looks at all these religious leaders that had all of this. Because you might think, how would they know? He is, Jesus is everywhere in the scriptures. Everywhere. So that here as we end in worship, the worship team can come up right now. As we end in worship, as we come to this place and we come back to Hebrews in a couple weeks, you're going to understand that when they're thinking of Jerusalem and they're thinking of temple worship and they want to go backwards to the shadows, to the formalities, to the incense, to the actual physical Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it, they're literally leaving the mercy seat and going back to the picture, to the type. And you'll get the essence of over and over and over in Hebrews. Paul's telling them, don't go back. Don't go back. You don't understand. Don't go back. I know it doesn't feel that way right now, but you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. And I believe that's a word of the Lord for you, someone here today, maybe listening on the radio or downstairs, wherever you might be, that even though you don't feel like you have all that you need, by faith in Jesus Christ, you have all that you need to live a life that pleases him. You have it all by faith in him. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray and we're not gonna stand like we normally do. We're not, we're gonna stay in a mode of prayer and you're gonna sing these songs with Pastor Ian in a mode of prayer. There's no rush to get out so you don't have to worry about that. There's no rush, take your time. Even if you have, even if you have appointments afterwards, just we'll only be a few minutes over. Go get your kids, get your picture. But before that, let's just end this time in a moment of prayer, just really asking the Lord to, to minister to us, to comfort us, singing the words as Pastor Ian had songs that he specifically chose for this time. And we're gonna end with a little bit of an extended response. And I know this is the time everybody gets up to try to get to their car. Just, just hang out. Let's not be so rep repetitious and routine. Let's be open to a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. And then after the songs, pastors are even staving back. Nobody's coming up until after the songs. So we all can respond. And we can all receive what God has for us. So Father, we, we do pray for you, the work of your Spirit. I pray for salvation to fall in this place, for men and women to repent of their sins, to, to come to you in a humble way. And, and for most of us, we just need to lay out before you the issues of our lives the things of which we learned today, that we might submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. 
Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.